Welcome into another edition of NBA Sound System. Gil McGregor here, joined by Scott Rafferty. Scott, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm doing well. There's lots of good basketball going on right now, so I can't complain. How about you, Gil? I'm pretty good. You know, you mentioned the good basketball going on. We're coming off of a huge weekend, a lot of action that we will certainly get to everything that is going on in the league and happened over this past weekend. But obviously, I want to start this week on a little bit of a, a more somber note. This past weekend, the NBA lost a legend. Uh, Paul Silas passed away at the age of 79 uh, on December 11th, Sunday, December 11th. And, um, you know, a lot of people, understandably, uh, it, the the headline is LeBron James first coach, but but understandably, and, and let it be known, uh, Paul Silas was much, much more uh, than LeBron's first head coach. Um, an amazing player, two-time All-Star, five-time All-Defensive Selection, three-time NBA champion, um, a, a legendary coach in his own right, trailblazing coach, um, and more importantly, just, just an amazing person. Um, talk about the people that, that he led, uh, the teams that he led. He's the first head coach in New Orleans basketball history, um, took over the franchise when they were still in Charlotte uh, in 1999, led the team for for five seasons just about um, – during that stretch, had a 208-155 record. Uh, they went to the playoffs in each of the first four full seasons in which he led the team. And, and personally speaking, uh, when my dad was working for the team, Paul Silas was somebody uh, who didn't mind uh, a little six, seven, eight-year-old kid running around uh, Charlotte Hornets and New Orleans Hornets shoot around. So a tremendous loss for the game. Um, obviously, his legacy lives on through his son, Stephen Silas, who is now the head coach of the Houston Rockets. So definitely want to to – extend uh, our hearts and our thoughts to the Silas family. I'm sure it's a difficult time for the family, but um, just hearing everything that everybody has said about Paul Silas and, and who he was uh, as a coach and what he was able to do uh, for the game and advance the game, move the game forward, uh, is how his legacy is definitely going to live on. Yeah, you said it. Um, a great player, a great coach, but more than anything, the thing that's jumped out to me, I, I don't have a personal connection uh, with him like you did, but um you know, anyone who knows him just speaks so highly of him from LeBron James, um, you know, to, to media people and everything like that. I, I would recommend going to check out Howard Beck's timeline. Um, he, he had a funny little anecdote the other day about how um, he would receive a text from Paul Silas every July <laughs> for his birthday. And he never knew. He didn't know him that well. Um, d- doesn't even know how he got his phone number. But every single July, he would text him just to wish him happy birthday because that's just, just the kind of person that he was. So, like you said, great player, great coach. Um, but everyone from top to bottom just spoke so highly of him. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that the best tweet to uh, to sum it all up comes from John DeShazer, who uh, covers New Orleans sports and has been doing it for a very long time. He said, Paul Silas was to be liked and admired for characteristics that extended far beyond a basketball court. And um, that's definitely something that lives on through his son as well, Stephen Silas, who is a great person, better person than he is coach, but he's also a pretty good coach too. And uh, again, our thoughts extended to the Silas family uh, at this time. Obviously, it's really difficult to to transition from something like that. So we'll do it as best as possible. And I think the natural way to do it is in the place where Silas's legacy lives on. That's down in New Orleans. He was the first head coach of that franchise. And things are going pretty well uh, down in New Orleans. I, I think uh, that might be an understatement to talk about things with the Pelicans franchise right now. They've won seven straight games in this past weekend. They had a weekend sweep of the Phoenix Suns in a playoff rematch to strengthen their hold on 
the number one seed in the Western Conference. This is the latest that New Orleans has been first in the Western Conference since the 07-08 season. And the weekend was highlighted by the 360 windmill heard around the world by Zion Williamson. So before we get into what this means for the Pelicans, I got to ask you, Scott, are you an unwritten rules guy? What was your thoughts about Zion's dunk to put the punctuation on the game? You know what? Growing up, I was always told about the the unwritten rules, how at the end of the game, you know, when it's out of reach, you just hold the ball, you don't go for that layup or whatever. So I, I grew up playing that way. Mm. But I got to say, I feel like in the NBA, it's different. Right. right. Like we want to we see Zion throw down a 360 windmill and punch at home, um, especially in a game like that against the Suns team where there is a little bit of a rivalry. So, look, I, mm-hmm. I get both sides of it for me, though. The NBA being the show that is and everything, I, I'm kind of sick of the, the unwritten rules, to be honest with you. What do you think? Uh, you know, it's funny, like, obviously they weren't written at all, but it's like, where like where do these unwritten rules even come from? You know, uh, I think it's it's always funny because you can point out the hypocrisy more often than not. Um, I saw a clip from the Suns blowout win over the Mavericks uh, in the playoffs last year when Bismack Biombo went up for a dunk late in the game and got fouled, and it, it caused a little bit of a hubbub. And, and the thing that people always say, kind of like you see in other sports when it's like, don't showboat, will we'll keep me from scoring, right? Like, you weren't mad about the other 120-something points they scored, so what difference is this now? And I think it's also taken away. That was a pretty impressive dunk that Zion did. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I yeah. mean, like, uh, to, to be 6'6", to whatever he is to let's just say 265 plus to get up like that and do that that's a dunk contest dunk and you know again like it was funny to hear antonio daniels on the broadcast going no 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 and 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 it, and it caused a little bit of a, of, a, of a hubbub after the game and i think there were some underlying themes to that you know chris paul and jose alvarado kind of had their thing going on cameron payne as uh, a guy who i think likes to showboat but doesn't like to be on the other side of it so um and zion even addressed it after the game like you know there was a lot more beyond behind that yep. dunk than just the dunk itself he sat on the sideline while he watched this team get eliminated by that same Suns team and i'm sure he wished uh, he could have done something in those times so there's a lot behind it so i'm not mad about it it is what it is I, I think that you know these guys are all getting paid they're all professionals we're not you know playing at a, at a high school level or a college level like you know like Go stop him. Go make a play on the ball. Don't hurt him, obviously. But, like, you know, if you don't want him to dunk, like, just swipe at the ball. I think he won't have a runway to do the dunk that he did. So, um, that aside, I think I learned a lot about this team. I know you can obviously say that Devin Booker uh, didn't play in the second game. He was hobbled in the first game. Chris Paul is just coming back into the lineup, but he played pretty well and made some plays, I guess, in the second game. He didn't do too much uh, when they played for a second time. But the Pelicans were without Brandon Ingram. They were without uh, – Herb Jones, that's two major components of their team. So, you know, as you look at this Pelicans team um, right now, uh, being number one this far into the season, what has been your uh, interpretation or impression of this team and, and, and their success and how sustainable is it for them to stay at the top of the Western Conference standings? The biggest thing that jumped out to me is that depth. Like this team has dealt with a number of injuries so far, you know, that they had Zion out for a little bit start the se- or near the start of the season. Ingram's mm-hmm. been out for what, seven, eight games right now. Right. And even CJ missed some time in health and safety protocols. And yet right. they've just kept winning. Um, and, and it's funny. I said this on a podcast the other day, but uh, it, it to think back a couple of years ago when they signed Devontae Graham, like that <laughs> felt like at the moment, a big signing for them, right. right? Like a guy who was coming off of a breakout season, addressed their point guard depth. And then now he's what, like that 10th or 11th man? Like they, they just have right. so many players on this team. 
who know their role, I think, first and foremost. But any night can kind of go off like, what, a week or two removed from Jose Alvarado going off for nearly 40 points right. um, against the Nuggets. You know, he, he's obviously not going to do that every night, but he, he can provide that scoring punch off the bench. He's an aggravator. We know about him picking up guys full court. But really, I mean, we can talk about all these different things about this team. Ultimately, it's Zion right now. Like, he is playing out of his mind. And this is a guy who, you know, two years ago when he made his all-star team, he, he was one of the biggest, most exciting players in the league. Obviously, didn't play at all last year while he was coming back from that foot injury, which was concerning. Um, he, he got off to a little bit of a, a, a slow start by his standards, at least, to start this season. But he's been incredible lately. I mean, these last seven games that he's played without Brandon Ingram, he's averaging 30 points, 9.1 rebounds, 5.3 assists, 1.6 steals, and 1.1 blocks on 66.9% shooting from the field. Like, his efficiency is, is unbelievable. You know, like, it, it's nothing new. We saw it a couple seasons ago. Like, he's, what, six foot six, but he's so mm-hmm. strong that he just bullies even, like, centers. Like, DeAndre Ayton, like, he's knocking him when he's driving to the basket, and he's just too quick for other guys, too. He's been unbelievable. So th- this team is just so much fun. Um, and to think, you know, Brandon Ingram isn't even playing right now and, and what that's going to look like when he comes back. So so you've got me thinking a few things based on talking about it the, the way that you just did. First of all, Zion, watching him play, and if you haven't already, just really take the time. I know the, the, the Pelicans really haven't been on national TV that much recently, but they're going to be again soon. But they are definitely a league past watch. And watching him uh, against the Suns and watching him against the Raptors earlier uh, in the week or whatever that game was during this this seven-game win streak that the Pelicans are currently on at the time of recording, Zion is, is just too quick. For some of the big guys who have the strength to guard him, and then he's too strong for the smaller guys who have the quickness to guard Zion. And then he has those intangibles because one thing I noticed when you mentioned DeAndre Ayton, who we saw do a solid job at times, as good of a job as you can do against Giannis in the finals a few years ago, which Zion is similar but different. Um, but seeing Zion drive and find ways to to kind of be crafty around the rim as well. I think that doesn't get talked about enough with Zion's skill set because we talk about his ability to follow his own shot and his athleticism, but the skill that's there to understand, you know, the angles, how to finish off the glass, where to, you know, hook this or curve that or scoop there. I think that's what sets Zion apart as far as his efficiency. And, and it's, a, it's a skill that doesn't get talked about enough because these guys are, again, pros. They're stars, superstars. They should be able to make layups. But it is a, a specific s- skill that you see with guys that have certain finishing packages. You talk about a Kyrie or a Steph Curry who are guards. But Zion as a big man who can finish above the rim but also under the rim in certain ways, I think that is a big part of why he's able to be such an efficient scorer. Now, you mentioned the fact that this stretch and this stretch of play from him and the Pelicans kind of coincides with Brandon Ingram exiting the lineup. I think there is the whole thing with correlation and causation. I don't think the Pelicans are a better team without an all-star guy who's capable of scoring 23 points, 25 points per game. And we've seen Brandon Ingram go off for 50 uh, uh, times. Brandon Ingram is one of the most gifted scorers in the NBA. But I do think that it speaks to the fact that they're still figuring out that fit. And the depth that this team has allows them to sometimes look better or play uh, more whole when it's more understood who is doing what. And I think they're still figuring that out. So are you at all concerned by the fact that they're playing so well and they look like 
things are cleaner without one of the key members of their big three and the other member being CJ McCollum that you mentioned? Or do you think it's just kind of one of those things that will sort itself out uh, over time? I wouldn't say I'm concerned. Um, I I mean, I think this is a good thing for the Pelicans that kind of no matter what, um, with one or two of their stars or their members of their big three out, they've been able to to win and perform well this season. Like if you look at the stats with Zion on the court and CJ McCollum on the court and Brendan off, um, which is actually their most played combination out of those three Mm -hmm. this season, they have a 9.2 net rating, which is absolutely elite. And obviously Mm -hmm. what they've been doing lately helps that number tremendously. But I, I do think... I think it's probably going to take some adjustment, obviously. Like, the, the, like to, to your point, Zion has played his best basketball this season when Ingram hasn't played. I don't think that is a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, but right, for this team to reach its full potential, they're going to need those three to be on the same page. I, I will say the encouraging thing for me is when you do look at the numbers, their best combination of those threes is still when they're, when they're on the court. Like they have a net rating of plus 14.4. Um so far this season, which and we really haven't, it feels like seeing them at their best as a team when they've all been healthy. So I think that's a great kind of baseline and for them to build off of that. But we, we were talking about it in our uh, meeting this morning about how, you know, it, it does kind of feel like the one thing maybe that you could nitpick about this team right now is they don't have like a traditional kind of point guard, a guy who's going to move the ball. You know, CJ is more of a scorer. So is Ingram. He, he has improved as a passer. But Zion is also another guy who needs the ball in his hands, is great at attacking the rim. He's a good passer, but he's a scorer first. But like just the way this team is constructed, what does that look like if you add a point guard next to them? Because we know CJ is going to be in the court end games, Ingram and Zion. Um, asking Zion to play center for a lot of the time is probably too much. I mean, he's just undersized defensively, um, all these different things. So I, I love like Larry Nance next to him because of the value he provides defensively. He can move the ball um, and, you know, he's great around the basket. But it, it does kind of feel like that's the one missing piece for them. But even then, like if they can, if the three of them can get on the same page, I mean, it, it does kind of feel like the sky is the limit for this team, right? Like they're the number one team in the West right now, considering all these injury issues that they've had. Um, so if they can kind of figure it out, and I, I do think there is probably going to be a bit of an adjustment period um, when Brendan Ingram comes back. But I, I am, I guess I'm an Ingram believer. I've always been pretty high on him. Um, <laughs> You know, look at what he did in the playoffs last year against the Suns, if you need right. an example of just how good he can be. So they're, they're just a fascinating team. And it feels like there's a lot of good vibes going on right now. They've got great depth. Um, and yeah, it is scary to think of how well they're playing right now to think of what they could be kind of when they're at full strength. I had this thought earlier in the year in watching the Pelicans. They opened the season with that blowout win in Brooklyn. And obviously the Nets had their own issues at that point of the season. They still do now, but not uh, to the extent that they had them early on in the year. But I had so much fun watching the Pelicans play in that game just because you can tell that they enjoy playing with one another and they enjoy playing off of one another. And I don't think there's ever an issue between like, oh, man, I'm not getting my shots tonight. He's, you know, I got to get this. I have to get this this amount of touches or whatever the case is. I really do think that they legitimately enjoy to see one another win as long as the team is winning. It doesn't matter whose night it is. And I think that's a perfect example of how they'll look at their peak that game specifically. Again, early in the year, the Nets had an abysmal defense at the time, but it was – 28 shot, 28 points on 17 shots from Ingram, 25 points on 22 shots from Zion, and 21 points on 16 shots from McCollum. And I think you go from there and you tweak those numbers accordingly based on who they're playing against, and you have three guys who 
in a playoff situation or a must-win situation, they can go get you a bucket. And I think that's a huge part on the checklist of a very successful team in any circumstance in the NBA. We've seen it probably for just about any team that's had any type of real success. They've had multiple guys to do that. And they also check the boxes having a lockdown perimeter defender in Herb Jones, a 3-and-D guy in Trey Murphy. They've built this team uh not perfectly. This team is not without flaw, but there are very few flaws. And again, you'd be nitpicking to talk be. about things. Yeah, it's good as can be. You know, they, yeah, they can upgrade much. in the margins, but it's interesting to look at teams like that that's, that's built around Zion. They've had some luck and they've traded well. They've made savvy moves. But also you look at the top of the Western Conference and the Grizzlies are right there. They're a young team. They've been successful despite the absence of Desmond Bain. But again, luck out in the lottery and you draft John Morant. You pair him with Jaron Jackson Jr. You, you strike golden draft well with guys like Desmond Bain um, and continue to build and then make savvy moves, adding Steven Adams. And it's interesting, these two teams made a deal with each other. They swapped bigs, Steven Adams for Jonas Valanciunas, and the fit has been cleaner for both guys in respective uh, areas. I know we saw Steven Adams played off the floor, but I think it's just interesting kind of a case study with these two young teams who are going to be at, to at the top of the Western Conference for years to come, considering Zion's 22 and Jaws 23, and these guys are going to be potential faces of the NBA. So just something I'm thinking about with this Pelicans team, and I know I asked you as we started this kind of segment, focusing on the Pelicans, if you foresee them being towards the top of the Western Conference for the entirety of the season. And the the highest this franchise ever finished in the West was the number two seed in 2008. They went 56 and 26. I think this team is far and away better than that team, which is definitely the best team in franchise history. They were one win away from the conference finals. So thinking about that, thinking about the young nucleus and the way they're building the right way, I think that's very encouraging if you're a Pelicans fan. And I think that it'll be a nice little rivalry uh, building between them and the Grizzlies because, you know, they got one and two from the same draft class. Absolutely. Zion and Jaw is just going to be exciting for hopefully let's, an another decade plus. Uh, I will say, I don't think you mentioned him, but Dyson Daniels has also been yes. uh, a real bright spot for them. Uh, and I'm, I'm super encouraged by what he's been able to show, like his size at the guard position, what he's able to do defensively. Um, he, you know, he's got some passing chops. Will he be able to, to shoot is kind of the big question with him. But he's another guy who just kind of fit, feels like he fits what they have to a T, right? So that it does feel like they've kind of hit another home run with him. They're, they're just a really fun team right now. Super talented, loads of depth. The big question with them is obviously health. Zion Williamson, we know what his, his kind of health history is. But you, you will you'll struggle to find someone who's higher on Zion Williamson. Maybe on Mike Adams might be higher on Zion Williamson than you and I. But I, I feel like, you know, we're, we're kind of in that top tier. Um, he, he's just a, a tremendous talent. A guy who, you know, it is funny. It, it feels like he, you know, everyone talks about it. He wants to get left. Everyone knows he wants to get left, right? And yet there's mm -hmm. nothing anyone can do to stop it because you're reacting to his quick drive, one hit, you're on your backside, and he's just at the rim before you can even react. Um, so it is scary even with him to think about, like, you know, what happens if he becomes, he can dribble with his right, obviously, but more comfortable kind of attacking that way. If he develops a floater, a little turnaround jumper, which we've seen a little bit from him um, recently, and then even stretching out to the three-point line, I think that's something, you know, it may never come. It might be one of those Giannis things where it's like, you know, it's something he works on his entire career and it never feels like he can quite get there. But all those little other things, like to think that Zion's already doing this, and he's still got so much room to grow. Again, like there's, there's just so much to be kind of optimistic about this team. And that's saying, you know, that's coming with them being the number one seed right now in the West. Um, and everything is so jumbled in the West that it's hard to know mm -hmm. really what to make of it because the Warriors are like a four-game win streak from being in the number one seed. You know what I mean? Like it, that's just the way it is right now. 
Um, but again, they're, they're trending in the right direction and it's, it's hard not to get excited about, about everything they're doing. Absolutely. Two things there. Zion, you mentioned him stretching the floor out. He knocked down two threes in that game against the Suns, and he looked comfortable doing it. So uh, we might see more from there. One more utility guy. I want to shout out Najee Marshall as a guy mm. who, again, fits that like that role. We don't talk about We've him. Named, like, he's like 12 the, players now. <laughs> he's, he, and another guy <laughs> who just does. He doesn't necessarily have one thing. I have a friend who mentioned this. He doesn't do one thing spectacularly well. He does a lot of things really good. And that's underrated, and teams need that. Now, I want to highlight the fact you mentioned the Golden State Warriors being a four-game win streak away from just kind of being there. We talk about you know the Pelicans and Grizzlies being atop the Western Conference now, but ultimately, anybody would traditionally say you aren't anything until you dethrone the champions, and until the Warriors are dethroned, whether it's in the first round or whatever the case may be, they are still the champions, and they reminded us reminded us of that over the weekend with a big statement primetime win over the Celtics in a finals rematch the first time those two teams went head-to-head since game six of the NBA finals. Pretty solid win for the Celtics, I would say. I mean, excuse me, for the Warriors, I would say. I think the Celtics, um, they've afforded the ability to have a mulligan or two this year. They've started so hot. They also were without Al Horford and, and Robert Williams still has yet to make his season debut. And the Warriors without Andrew Wiggins, lest we not forget. So, Scott, when you, when you talk about this statement victory from the Warriors ahead of a big road trip, and they've struggled on the road all year uh, against Eastern Conference opponents, do you think that uh, that's enough to build that momentum to kind of right the ship? Because we've been talking about this multiple times, and now it kind of feels like there's something tangible that they can build off of. Do you think that that win over the Celtics is it? Do you think that this road trip in which – among other teams, they play against the Bucks, Sixers, and Nets um, on a six-game Eastern Conference road trip ahead of Christmas. What do you think about the state of Golden State? Yeah, there's no denying it. Like that was a very impressive win for them. Steph was, as he has been all season long, fantastic. You know, a guy who was easily in the MVP conversation mm-hmm. might be the front runner if the Warriors had a couple more wins. Like he, he's playing as well as, if not better, than his unanimous MVP season. He, he's just been spectacular. Klay Thompson was a big story for the Warriors, I feel like, in that game, kind of having one of, you know, probably his best game of the season, um, given the kind of magnitude or spotlight that was on that matchup. So I, I thought, you know, both of them were the headliners. I think, you know, being able to defend Jason Tatum the, the way that they did, even without Andrew Wiggins, you know, to your point, the Celtics have been so good this season and so has Tatum that they're afforded, you know, one rough night, a mulligan, if you will. But I, I do think, you know, that they played him really well last season in the finals, um and you know the fact that they defended him well in that game too i think that's very encouraging for them and by the way is kavon looney the most underappreciated player in the nba i know this is like a topic of conversation that happens a lot mm-hmm. kind of feels like to me he's the most underappreciated appreciated just the, all the little things that he does especially defensively being able to switch um as well as he does as a big man i i just i, I think kavon looney's kind of fantastic in what he does so all in all a really encouraging win I do think that could be kind of a turning point for the Warriors, but I think the real test will be this upcoming road trip. Because as you said, they've been miserable on the road this season. They they currently have, going into this road trip, they are tied with the Cavaliers for the best home record in the NBA. They are 12-2 and two at home. They are 2-11 and 11 on the road. 2-11. And, and they've Terrible. played some good teams on the road, but they've also uh, had some pretty uninspiring losses, like a, you know an overtime loss to a Lamella Ballless Hornets team. Um, they lost Ooh. to the Pistons. They lost to the Magic. And you look at the numbers. I mean, they, they actually, I think they rank third in defensive rating at home this season. When they go to the road, only the Spurs have a worse defensive rating than the Warriors. 
right now. <laughs> um, they just can't get any stops on the road. So I think, you know, th- this is going to be a very interesting stretch for them. They play the Bucks. They play a Pacers team that has been way feistier than anyone thought this season. And it's already they the, they're one of those two losses that the uh, Warriors had at home, yep. right? <laughs> yeah, and then they're playing the 76ers, who are kind of getting back to full strength. They still don't have Tyrese Maxey, but Joel Embiid is coming off of a 50-point game. Uh, he he kind of looks like, you know, after a little bit of a slow start to the season, he's back to himself. Um, you know, then they, they play a Raptors team, which is kind of the same situation as them. Awful on the road, but actually pretty good at home this season. And mm-hmm. Toronto is a really hard place to play. And they play a Knicks team um, that's, you know, been very up and down, and they play the Nets. And also, by the way, during this stretch, they have two back-to-backs on this road trip. And we, as you said, Andrew Wiggins, we still don't know kind of what his availability is going to be. So I do think this is a very telling stretch uh, for the Warriors, just given how much they've struggled on the road so far this season, kind of the teams that they're playing. But they've, you know, we we just talked about the Pelicans and how they have the number one seed right now. There is a map, there is a roadmap here, whereas like if the Warriors do, you know, pretty good on this road trip, I think they have a nine, eight or nine game homestand after this. So like the opportunity is there for them over the next like three or four weeks to really, really juice up this record um, and kind of continue to move up the Western Conference standing. So I, I do think all in all, a very encouraging win over the Celtics, all things considered. But this is a this is a big couple of weeks coming up for, for the defending champs. I find myself very confused might not necessarily be the word with this Warriors team but there's just so many things to kind of take into consideration when you talk about the big picture whether it's you know a deep run for an older team and the 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 constant talk about preserving two timelines with the young guys and they're not necessarily like living up to what's been expected of them to kind of um maintain or uphold that championship standard and then you talk about their their road record where on some nights it seems like they just kind of don't care on some nights they just don't suit anybody up and there are all these things where it's like are they are they overly confident are they are they being calculated like what is the the true deal that's impacting this warriors team and causing them to approach things the way that they are approaching them because then they come out like they did last Saturday and they're clicking on all cylinders and you're reminded just how scary they can be and how dangerous they can be when they are playing at that level. But then again, like the the game before, two games before, whatever it was, there was that extremely, it was a game before, that extremely confounding loss where they had the game in the bag in Utah and they just don't execute down the stretch. Granted, everybody was pretty much resting in that game, but still like, I don't know if it's, again, being calculated, being cocky, confident, or, or really just focused on winning games or figuring out the the formula that they want to have and the pieces they want to keep and, and whatever is going to be most important when we get to late February and March and, and going down the stretch until April. Because, again, the, the parity in, in this Western Conference and really in the league this year, I think they're going to have a, a, a puncher shot at, at a top seed in the West. And I think that Steve Kerr and the management continue to realize that, that you know, as, as good of a start as the Pelicans and, and Grizzlies have had, they haven't had a, a start kind of like um, the Suns did last year or the Celtics have had this year where it's like, you know, you're not going to catch them, so so no no worries. If if the Warriors can go four and two on this trip out east and then take care of business during that homestand, teams are inevitably going to lose games. The Pelicans are going to lose again. They're not going to win the remainder of their games and finish seventy four and eight. And the Grizzlies aren't going to finish seventy three and nine. We're going to see a little bit of a few things. They're going to play these teams a few times as well. So I'm really interested to see how the strategy 
evolves. I don't think it's going to necessarily change, but I think the strategy is going to evolve because I still think they're trying to figure out what they have, what they need to to fix, and maybe what they need to tweak. And if they need to make any moves, where they are right now, I think they're still in a, I, I guess, an evaluation period. But I, I wonder if they do think that there are any moves that need to be made. Um, and I think they'll learn a lot about themselves over this next road trip and the ensuing homestand. It's really look. It's really hard to defend your title, mm-hmm. right? There's a reason Absolutely. why it's pretty rare for guy for teams to go two in a row. Uh, it, it's just really difficult. It's such a grind. The 82 games and the entire playoffs, and especially when you have an aging core like the Warriors do, and they're fortunate that Steph is still Steph, right? Like we, we just talked about it. He's been absolutely incredible this season. Him playing at this level gives you a chance, kind of no matter what. But I, I think when you kind of step back. It, it, it makes sense that they've had a bit of a up and down start, considering how long last season was. You know, they they held Clay Thompson out. They he by all accounts took it easy in the off season, just knowing that the injuries he's had. Um, they took it easy on him in preseason. He's been very open about how he's kind of been working his way back. He's looked much better lately. Like that Celtics game, I think that's you know huge huge development for them. And like you said, just kind of bridging that gap between the old and the new. Um, there's just so many young guys in that second unit who are still finding their way in the NBA, figuring out, you know, what kind of players they are. And yes, we've seen flashes from Moses Moody. We've seen flashes from Jonathan Kaminga. James Wiseman is a huge question mark. Um, and how they deal, what, how they handle kind of his situation is going to be huge for them moving forward, whether he's, you know, part of their future plans or they trade him, like you said, and try and upgrade somewhere else. Um, but that second unit, I mean, if, you, if you're looking for, Kind of things to be encouraged by if you look at the the way that their starting five has performed this season they, they look like the best lineup in the nba on paper still um i, I think mm-hmm. that's huge for them especially when you know that rotations are going to shorten in the playoffs it's really been that bench that has struggled and i still i think even then you know playing draymond green more with those bench heavy units um it does feel like they've been better lately so i i do think you know when you consider all those things for me i think there's more things to be encouraged by um, with the Warriors moving forward. But again, with all that being said, at some point they're going to need to win games on the road, right? Like they can't, you know, do this all season long because, again, the, the the West is so jumbled right now that you can kind of afford to go through this kind of up and down start. Um, but at some time, these teams are going to separate themselves. And with the way that the play-in is now, there's only six teams that are guaranteed a playoff spot. Um, so at some point, you got to win those games. So I, I do, you know, all things considered, I'm more encouraged by what I've seen from the Warriors lately than anything else, but this is a huge road trip coming up for them. Yeah, they they know firsthand that the plan might not necessarily go the way you yep. want it to. So I, I I expect to see some type of sense of, urge, of urgency sooner rather than later from this Warriors team to avoid a repeat of 2021. Who knows what would have happened if they got in the dance, but they didn't get there. So they ended up with a draft pick and... And now we're talking about whether or not those young guys can figure it out or not. Um, as we round around here, obviously, Scott, I want you to crack open your notebook. I know we did this in the past. You know, what what has stood out to you? Uh, something you pointed out around the 30 teams in the league, I guess the 28 other teams, since we talked a lot about the Pelicans and Warriors at length. But uh, what stood out to you? You know, Gil, a week ago, I feel like we we were a little bit more positive on the Raptors, even though they were going through a bit of a rough stretch. We had good things to say about them, their potential when they get back to full strength and everything. I mean, it's it's it reminds me in the NBA about how quickly things can change. You know, a week removed and the situation just looks way more dire. Um, they're coming off of two bad losses to the Magic, a team that does not have a winning record. It's probably going to be in the Victor Webanyama sweepstakes. 
Um, just not too too good losses for a team that you know wants to be in that kind of top six mix in the Eastern Conference. And yes, they're dealing with some injuries, but you know Scotty Barnes hasn't had taken that leap. He's really struggled actually for most of the season um, after winning Rookie of the Year. Fred VanVleet hasn't been able to make shots. Um, you know he's never been a, a very good shooter inside the three point line, finisher at the rim, and everything. But he's struggling from both so far this season. Um, it, it's just it's just not good. You know we talked about the good vibes for the Pelicans. The vibes do not feel good in Toronto right now. And if you look at cleaning the glass. They are still one of the best. They're actually second in efficiency in transition offense. They are dead last. They rank 30th in points per 100 possessions in the half courts. This team can just not manufacture points when the game slows down and everything, which has been a problem really for most of Nick Nurse's tenure um, in Toronto. I don't think that's necessarily a reflection on him. I just think that's kind of like the players that they've had. Um, You know, they've kind of built this defensive mentality, a team that's going to run on you no matter what in the open core, out hustle you, all these other things. Um, but yeah, they, they just can't solve that thing in the half court, no matter how good Pascal Siakam's been, how good OG Ananobi has been. So, and, you know, we're starting to see them kind of mentioned more in trade rumors. Um, and, you know, December 15th is a big day coming up um, with a lot of players becoming eligible to be traded who signed contracts in the off season. I think hoop rumors, I saw they said 74 players um, that applies to. And then we got the trade deadline in a couple of months. So it's, it's going to be very interesting to see, I think, what the, how the Raptors navigate these, these coming weeks and coming months. You know, it's funny that you talk about the vibes and, and the injuries and things with the Raptors. It's amazing the difference a year can make. One, just because how well they played last year and the expectations that we placed upon them this year based on that. And I, was just, I wanted to quickly look back just to make sure. They were 13 and 14 at the same juncture last year, but – as we can tell by the way we're talking about things, all 13 and 14 records don't look the same and don't feel the same. I think you and I both are still waiting for them to make a jump shot. I think I saw a stat they're shooting about 28% from three over the last 14 games. So it's not been fun. And obviously that has a big role uh, in their inability to score in the half court. You think that it would help a little bit if you can get you know, Fred Van Vliet to make more shots. Um, OG Anobi is dealing with a hand injury, and he's seen his shooting kind of take a step back. So there are issues, but at the same time, I mentioned that to say that last year they turned it around. And now I think this different type of sense of urgency that's more so uh, – expectations related whereas last year kind of felt like they were playing with house money they got hot and then it was all of a sudden like uh oh wow this raptors team actually might not be a playing team oh they might get a top four seed whereas for a while i remember vividly talking about oh the raptors can get in the plan let hopefully they can avoid the nets in the playing tournament and then all of a sudden you know we're talking a series preview between the raptors and 76ers that a lot of us uh expected the raptors to make noise if not advance to the second round so I am pretty discouraged at the fact that there haven't haven't been as many excuses as last year. I I am confident that Scotty Barnes will figure it out in the big picture. Uh, I don't know if that is, you know, before All-Star break, sooner than that, or after All-Star break before the year ends. But it is an interesting circumstance, a situation that the Raptors find themselves in. And again, it just feels way different than last year. I think a big part of that is something that I pointed out in my notebook. I mentioned the Raptors are a game under 500. They're one of... 13 teams in the league currently at the time of recording that are within three games of 500. I don't know if that speaks to this being a weird season, if it's just because everybody's kind of dealt with, you know, this injury thing one way or another because it's teams like the Heat, uh, Raptors involved in that. The Warriors are another one of those teams. Trailblazers, 
Kings. It's a, a wild assortment of teams who are on various levels uh, on, on their developmental timeline, so to speak, because the Pacers are right in there as well, the Hawks. A lot of these teams, so I'm really interested as it pertains to that December 15th date, which of those teams feel like they need to hurry and, and make a move to fix things and kind of get on track which of those teams might be sellers and like, oh, we're doing a little too well. We need to, you know, tank for Victor Wembanyama. And which teams are kind of like, you know, the Heat or, or or whatever, saying we just need to get healthy. Uh, and this is who we actually are. I think the Heat are a flawed roster. And I think we, that's a team that we'll probably investigate a little bit more as the season goes on. But it's just so much going on with those teams. I think that is something that's going to be very interesting to follow when those 74, 75 guys become available uh, on the trade market. Agreed. It's going to be fascinating to see, to your point, the buyers and sellers around the really starting December 15th, because that's kind of like the unofficial opening of uh, of the uh, trade season and everything like that. So it, it is going to be fascinating because it does in both conferences. It's just so jumbled. Like it really is like four games separating one through 10, it feels like. Um, and I think it, it just makes it harder to kind of figure out which teams you should be worried about and which ones you feel like, you know, like the Warriors. They win four straight games. It's a different conversation. But right. I do think, you know, like a team like the Heat, again, we'll talk about them another time. But I, I think, you know, the way that Bam Adebayo has played, Jimmy Butler has been in and out of the lineup with injuries. I kind of feel like as long as they're healthy, knowing how good of a coach Eric Spolster is, like there's still a team that no one's going to want to play. That doesn't mean that they don't have problems, especially, you know, kind of filling that P.J. Tucker void, who he's a guy who... Maybe it's in his contract. He's just not going to shoot anymore. I don't know. Maybe that's how Philly got him. But a guy who is, you know, super physical, um, guards the best player on the opposing team. Like he does a lot of the little stuff that makes a big difference on a championship contender. Um, you know, we're seeing it in Jay Crowder and Phoenix as well. You know, it doesn't help that Cam Johnson is is out with an injury as well because he was the, the person who replaced him. But those kind of guys are just so valuable on championship contenders. Um, but yeah, it's, it is going to make for a very interesting kind of trade deadline coming up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Interesting trade deadline. Again, December 15th is the date to keep an eye on. You'll probably see plenty of action on the trade market and a lot more rumors are going to come out. And again, a big week of action in the league starts with the Warriors in Milwaukee on Tuesday. And then we got a classic rivalry, Celtics-Lakers on TNT in the States uh, on Tuesday. And then Again, the war, the the Pelicans and the Suns play again this again. weekend. So the, the again, so like the third the third time in like eight days, it really does kind of feel like a playoff series. They play on a Friday and a Sunday, and then they will be back at it again on Saturday, December seventeenth. So maybe we'll have more Pelican Suns storylines and uh, unsportsmanlike dunks to talk about next week on NBA Sound System. Thanks again for tuning in this week. And remind you, if you have not already, please subscribe and get each episode of NBA Sound System right into your feed every time they drop. For Scott Rafferty, I am Gil McGregor, thanking you for tuning in to this week's edition of NBA Sound System. We'll catch you next time.